1: So, Jason, today's show, sadly, marks the end of season two of Candidate Confessional.
0: It's the hardest part of being a podcast host, know. It's but calling you know, an end to a season.
1: I thought to mark the occasion, what better way to close things out than to bring back one of our favorite guests from season one. Oh my
0: God, where is he? Where's Ben Canuck?
1: It's not Buben Canuck. love him. <laughs> you know it's not Buben Canuck. Now, in recent episodes, we've been looking back to previous political eras. But today, we're shifting gears a bit. In a way, today's episode is about the future of politics in the age of Donald Trump. And for that purpose, we're going to take a look at one very recent election. Now, the 2016 presidential election left us relatively adrift in the sea of political uncertainty. There was Trump's win. There was the Clinton-Sanders primary And then there's pretty much everything that's happened since January 20th. Many of the assumptions that we held about what voters actually want seem to have been upended. And in the search for answers, we inevitably reduce every subsequent election into a
0: simplistic frame.
1: The Georgia special election was viewed by many as a referendum on President Trump.
0: Political experts have suggested the race could be a referendum on the Trump presidency. And they considered it a referendum for President Trump. A referendum Trump. on President, referendum Trump, on President, Trump, on Trump, President Trump. Trump. Of course, not every contest can be made about Trump. No. Especially, for example, if it's between Democrats. One of the races to pay attention to is the race for Governor of Virginia, where former Congressman Tom Perriello is challenging the current Lieutenant Governor, Ralph Northam, in the Democratic primary. Longtime fans of this show may remember that we interviewed Tom Perriello for season one. He won a seat in Congress during the Obama wave of 2008, and over the next two years, as swing-state Democrats deserted the president, Perriello vigorously defended the Obama agenda. He kept the 2010 race close, but ultimately fell short. Perriello was swept out of office in the Tea Party wave of 2010.
1: Now, after a few years at the Center for American Progress and working as a diplomat in Africa, Perriello decided to try his hand in Virginia electoral politics once more. So early this year, he challenged the state's lieutenant governor, Ralph Northam, in the Democratic gubernatorial primary. Now, Perriel is pretty solidly on the economic left, and he had the support of Senator Bernie Sanders. So we in the news media quickly found a very tidy template to analyze this race. It was Bernie versus the establishment all over again. A narrative has taken shape. Tom Periello is the fiery voice of the Trump resistance, backed by Senators Bernie Sanders and
0: Elizabeth Warren. Northam has the backing of most of the party's establishment, but uh, Periello was endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders. So what does Tom himself think of this particular trope?
2: I think it's a pretty lazy framework. First of all, I think both of them are historic figures. Hillary Clinton has been a groundbreaking diplomat around the world. Bernie Sanders inspired a movement to address inequality and corruption. We would love for our campaign to be worthy of both of those traditions.
1: He's not totally wrong, of course. That said, the issues that Perillo tried to bring to the fore were the same ones that the Democratic Party is currently having a major internal struggle over. Most centrally, how our political system should adjust to a changing economy rocked by things like globalization, and more importantly, automation. Now, Perillo lost to Northam, but his run still revealed lessons for Democrats, mainly how the party needs to completely upend its thinking, its policies, and its general approach to thrive in the age of Trump. This... This is candidate confession. Tom Periello, thank you for joining us.
2: <laughs> I, I when people ask why I ran for governor this year, I say so that I could lose and be on this podcast again. It was really Yeah, no, it's an motivation.
1: inspiration an inspiration to all <laughs> it's, a, positive it's, a, it's a great out there. way
0: to you know make money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a lucrative. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm donating hundred percent of my proceeds from this <laughs> podcast. I'm here. sorry
1: to all the charities who will get nothing. <laughs> so I guess um, half half the Dr. Pepper is drinking. <laughs> That's true, yeah. the diet yeah. Dr. Pepper. So let's um, why don't we start at the beginning? Why why run it all? You know, I felt... Um, well, let me stop right there. You ran, because no one, we just got to make sure, you ran for the Democratic nominee to be the Democratic nominee in the Virginia gubernatorial race in 2017. So why run at all? You were away from Virginia
0: for a while too. So if you want to kind of... Yeah. You were looking at you were looking to that as sort of almost as observer through through 2016.
2: Yeah, I'd been, you know, hatch act limited because I was working for the Obama administration. So I couldn't be involved in politics. I was living in Alexandria. And, you know, frankly, as I talked about on the trail, you know, uh, a huge number of the workers, that were affected by the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review were actually in Northern Virginia. And we were looking at even issues like transportation, frankly, as a national security challenge, um, because we are, have such a disastrous infrastructure in Northern Virginia, and it affects everything from quality of life, our ability to recruit people in. So you know, there was a lot of engagement uh, in Virginia, but not necessarily in the traditional political context. But as someone who has worked in countries with authoritarians and with racial demagogues, I had a very strong sense on election night that this was not a transfer of power from Democrats to Republicans. This was something new that we had not seen. Not only had he run what I considered the most viciously racist campaign of my lifetime, um, but this was someone where there was kind of a deeper um, set of tendencies there that were problematic. And I knew that my state of Virginia was going to be the first place to genuinely have a showdown about that. But I also had a a sense and I think this was part of what really animated our campaign that it was very important for Democrats not just to address Trump but the forces that gave rise to Trump in the first place because it's very important to understand he's not a leader. He's just not – like he's a manipulator. And rider of trends, he doesn't actually have the gravitas or brain wave to actually create a trend. And as I've talked about before here and elsewhere, Five or six years ago, I became uh, convinced that the probabilities of a world war have increased dramatically uh, in the last 10 years. And it's a collision course of two forces that essentially in my mind predicted the rise of Trump. One has been uh, the disappearance of work and resulting skyrocketing of both debt and radical inequality uh, across the world. And the second has been the resurgence of structural and overt racism as a political strategy. It's never gone away. So we had this you know – we're starting to have this debate after the election election. Was this – was Trump's election about economic anxiety or about racism? And my answer is yes. These two things have always gone hand in hand and reinforced each other and Trump understood that and was able to play on that trend. So if we don't admit the structural and overt racism part, we're not doing our job as progressives. But if we then get reductionist and say therefore all of these voters out there are just about racism and there is no economic problem, we are losing touch not just with Trump voters but actually with the vast majority of our own coalition that is struggling economically. Economically. And that was what was exciting on the campaign trail uh, was that an enormous number of the things that we were doing that actually excited our coalition uh, outside the inner ring suburbs mm-hmm. was also stuff that played well in Trump country. And so I think we were developing um, some really exciting uh, policy and vision pieces that can be part of that path forward. It's just going to take a politician more talented than me.
1: Probably the most uh, uplifting first response to a question: World War Three, yeah. racism, inequality. So wait, but what Jeez. made you? What made, Tom.
0: What, made, what made you? But what made you? Do <laughs> you the, know, I, I, I used up time, all, all my fun material the first time around. Now, now you get but, uh, uh, Armageddon. So Tom. Did you?
1: Did you really actually just decide on election night that you want to run, or had you been thinking about? jumping in prior to uh, – jumping back into electoral politics prior to
2: election? No, it was a real uh, conversion experience that night. I mean I, I had been excited for different reasons. What
1: were you doing then? Tell, tell us where were you that night, what, what how you processed the returns. I mean a lot of people were shocked by it. I'm assuming you were one of them.
2: Uh, you know, I kind of went back and forth. I, I felt during a lot of last year that people were underestimating Trump's chances. Um, at the same time, there was still that part of me that just didn't want to believe that it was possible. Um, so, in that, you know, Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Rock, I'd say I was half with, you know, the people on the couch and half with the people standing up. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, right now, what had been very hopeful in the last few years, which also had made me think about politics again, was that I, I've always believed that movements change the world and politicians show up to take the credit for it. Sure. And during most of my lifetime, we haven't had very strong progressive movements with a few exceptions, obviously, the LGBT movement and a few others. But in recent years, you've really seen an emergence or kind of a, a growing up evolution of multiple movements, obviously, the immigration, uh, dignity and rights movement, the inequality movement, the Black Lives Matter movement and others. And I felt like it was creating space um, for a different generation of politicians to come and work with that because I used to believe politicians don't matter. Now I believe it's a partnership. It's the job of movements to change our sense of what's possible. It's the job of politicians to work within the sense of what's possible. But the difference between getting, you know, an LBJ who's willing to push that envelope and frankly, JFK who gets too much credit who tended to take a more narrow view is the difference between great leaps forward or great moments of progress and social change. And this appeared to me to be one of those initially I was feeling on the optimistic side. (laughs) Now it's not back Mm -hmm. in the other direction. But that's also part of movement history, which is actually the Nixons of the world have been, and I think Trump knew this, the more dystopian play on racism have tended to respond to actual racial progress. And that wasn't just Obama's election that people get focused on. I think it was as much to do with the movement for black lives and the willingness to actually start talking about genuinely valuing lives, looking at the DOJ, poking into some of these issues.
1: So you recognized Trump's opening pretty early on, it seems like. I mean, you didn't think he would win, but you saw that there was a
2: yeah, there was no. there. And I thought it would actually happen uh, in Europe before it happened in the U.S. So when I play out the World War scenarios, there are like seven different scenarios. But the the rise of sort of white nationalism yeah. had a few different places it could play out. Unfortunately, we won that race. Congrats. He is like a risk board at home. Yeah, I, I was going to say we well, game this.
0: But uh, right, uh, well, what about Trump's connection to rural voters? that you think you could challenge in a in a sort of practical way? So. I mean, right now you're thinking – I'm thinking of you as running for like the head of Brookings. So now you're in – This is exactly the myth I want to explode. So
2: first thing that's worth noting is uh, we won rural parts of Virginia by 60 or 70 points. Um, And the number of days that I spent having conversations – in rural Virginia where people brought up to me what I'm about to talk about, issues like monopoly and issues like automation. And then I would end the day inside the beltway with people saying, oh, you can't talk like that to those people. You sound like a think tank. Well, you know what? People are pretty damn smart. Mm-hmm. And they know that automation's a problem because it's already killed more coal jobs than natural gas has. Um, this is something that is already a lived reality, uh, both for a lot of communities of color and, and urban areas and rural white voters. And so, you know, the theory was, and we, we – we went out and tested this and it worked, you know, I would say often, look, I agree that Trump gets half right. We've lost five point seven million manufacturing jobs in the last ten years. Can anyone in this room tell me where 85 percent of them went? And when I'm in Trump country, every hand goes up and they say computers and technology. Um, when I do the same question up here, I'm actually more likely to get other answers. China, Mexico, right. yeah. Um, and so the idea of going in to communities and um, validating the parts of their lived experience that we want to validate uh, and then speaking to that is, is a game changer. We talked a lot about monopoly in this race um, because basically if you look at the Clinton recovery in the 90s, 73 you know, uh, percent of new businesses were created in small and medium-sized towns. If you look at this recent recovery, um, 80% plus was in the big cities, Yeah, uh, 0% in small towns and counties. So there's not some myth that Trump voters are too dumb to realize what's going on economically. They're actually 10 steps ahead of where we are. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that racism wasn't also an issue, though I actually think Trump used racism more effectively with the white suburbs than he did with white rural communities. So when you go out – you know I think part of my background as you know uh, is that I spent more time as a peace negotiator than as a politician. And one of the things you do as a peace negotiator, of course, is you go out and listen a lot and you try to find common ground between people who've literally been killing each other. Um, and uh, you don't have to reach full agreement, but you try to build off that common ground. Um, and I can't tell you how many days I would start in a blue part of the state And particularly say in the African-American community and have people say, whatever happened to the trade schools and the apprenticeship programs and community college pathways into trades in the working class? And then I'd be out in one of the reddest parts of the state and they would say, you know, whatever happened to the trade schools and the apprenticeship programs? And then they'd say, you know, we really need to take mental health more seriously and we need to start treating addiction as a, a health crisis and not a criminal crisis. And then you'd be back in the blue part and you'd hear the same thing. And none of those, frankly, are issues that are going to come up at the top of the list at a Democratic fundraising So why, wait, why is that? Why wouldn't it come up as a top issue? If I bring it up, there's a lot of support for it. But it's not the first – it's not in the forebrain of the lived experience of people that can write a $1,000 check.
1: It sounds like in, in some ways you saw your bid for governor not just as a chance to be governor uh, uh, but a chance to sort of revamp how Democrats operate. Electorally, um, I'm not saying that you had like this huge mission, but maybe you thought, But maybe you did. Maybe did you when you jumped into the race? Did you think, okay, this is an opportunity not just to win, uh, but it, uh, an opportunity to give a template for Democrats about how to talk to
2: Trump voters? I would frame it differently, but sure. it gets partly to the same place. My goal was to actually govern. <laughs> Um, okay, fair like I wasn't that interested in having the title of governor. I was interested in what I could accomplish as governor, and so we were trying to run the race in a way that would actually maximize my ability to get things done when I was in Richmond. Um, and that, in part, is going to require changing the political map across the state, partly because of the gerrymandering. Um, this is what many, including I think the Washington Post Ed Board, just completely get wrong about how politics works today. Um, I think what we were doing is actually building a significant political base. In parts of the state that would then make it easier for me to work with those legislators, not because I'd gone and hugged it out with them. That approach stopped working in the '90s, right? If that worked, then Barack Obama would have gotten bipartisan support yeah, for sure. everything he supported. It's about going out and actually changing that political foundation. So I wanted to win, but I also wanted to win with a coalition that would allow me to actually get things done that could reduce human suffering and increase human flourishing. Now, obviously, the hope was if we did that, uh, you know, Podesta called our race the blueprint for the future of the. Democratic Party, no pressure. Um, and so, yes, I mean, we understood that this was in part hopefully something others could learn from. And I think even in a loss, you know, the groups we did well with are the groups Democrats are struggling with: uh, sure. young voters, uh, voters of color, below the age of sixty-five, and uh, rural voters. What did you,
1: as you went out and did this, as you were trying to build the blueprint for the twenty-first century Democrat? Um, what did you discover about the Democratic Party that maybe was different from your last run in twenty ten? How is the party? evolved since you were last in election or virginia or just virginia itself
2: yeah um well first 10 years ago facebook was how you reach young voters and now facebook is how you reach seniors um, so you know there <laughs> That's are some true you gotta go snap yeah. yeah no it's hey reaching seniors is, is important sure um parties changed a lot and it's really exciting i mean you know we We've joked about it a little bit, but when we got in this race, the question was could a nominee um, in Virginia um, win the nomination after standing for a $15-an-hour minimum wage, two years of community college and a comprehensive criminal justice reform package? And the answer is yes because that's – you know, Northam ran on that. Uh, Now, we think we pushed the debate in those ways by introducing a lot of issues that had been considered untouchable uh, by democrats uh, in Virginia and elsewhere a decade ago. And I think this is what to me – it means to get out of the 1990s mindset. There are a lot of things we think about when we talk about the 1990s approach to politics, triangulation, a lot of the other pieces. But I think underneath it all, to me, is the question about whether we think the economy is fundamentally working and we just need to tweak it around the edges for those people who've been marginalized or left out or whether we think that there's something actually not working in the economy. And I think this is the difference, for example, between the old approach of saying, let's have a $2,000 tax credit for college affordability or saying we're going to make two years of community college free um, and you know, move towards potentially four years of free university education. That's a difference of understanding um, generationally that the opportunities that existed before just don't exist. Um, but I think our willingness to talk about uh, criminal justice reform – we also put out a paper that had been done before on the racial wealth gap in Virginia, um, talked in some very blunt terms connecting the dots because I think one of the things – that is very important across the country but particularly in the former capital of the Confederacy is we have this tendency in our history to kind of jump from slavery to today with a brief stop in Jim Crow. And It's really important to understand the reconstruction period and lynching sure. to understand Woodrow Wilson firing African-Americans from the federal workforce, GI Bill exclusions, redlining. Each generation, there's been a ticket to the middle class that's been marked no admittance for the African-American community. So talking about that process is very important. And
1: you weren't having these conversations in 2010, 2009 or they were just different conversations.
2: I think we, you know, we were able or willing to have a much more blunt conversation and talk about um, privilege, including white privilege, which I was very br- blunt about in the campaign, and still did well in rural yep. communities. So I think there's this sense that we have to do one or the other. Um, it's not easy, and I'm the first to admit I lost the primary, and it would have been <laughs> exciting to test this in the general. But you wouldn't um, have
1: been
0: on the show. So uh, correct, mean, correct. He, that's the trade-off. That's why he
2: yeah, lost, <laughs> lost the um, so,
0: but, but did you But did you get a sense of differences in, just in the voters, like the voters that you were meeting and talking to in 2010 versus who you were meeting now. What were, the, what were their issues then and what were their issues now? What are their concerns?
2: Um, look, I mean some things have changed. Uh, in 2010, my vote for Obamacare was uh, political liability and in this it was a political asset. Um, and I think uh, … Even in the rural parts? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, you didn't really say that with conviction. <laughs> well, I'm only because I didn't test in a general election. Like That's it was right. great for me in the rural areas in a primary, but yeah. I want to be, you know, honest about yeah, yeah. what we were able to test. My sense was there that actually the Medicaid expansion, one of the, I think one of the mistakes that we make, particularly up in Northern Virginia, is to assume that these right wing legislators in Richmond actually represent the constituents in their communities. If you go to Southwest Virginia, people are much more pragmatic about healthcare. You have people um, who can literally look across the border into Kentucky and see cousins who have the Medicaid expansion and they're saying, why the hell don't we have that here? We had an entire hospital shut down that almost certainly would have stayed open if the Medicaid expansion was there. That's a huge amount of jobs. That's education. So I think the Medicaid – the way you get the Medicaid expansion through – and we talked about this and this comes back to the peace negotiating background. Is you don't win that fight in Richmond, you win it in Wise County, you win it in you know uh, Lee County, and you go out and make the case about these things, um, and that's what we're going to keep doing. So I do think that that the argument uh, there is strong. Um, I think the uh, even and we talked about this. I mean. Attitudes to criminal justice reform have changed a lot Uh, and I was – again, tried to be very blunt about this on the campaign. Is it a shame that that's only happening now that it's hitting whiter, more conservative communities that we're changing the conversation? Yes, but are we going to miss that uh, convergence to actually not get an opportunity to reduce human suffering? No. And so I think on this whole question about how do we both reach out in rural communities but not sell out our base, I think some of that is to – both engage on something like the opioid epidemic because as progressives, what does it mean if we're not? doing that when three Virginians die every day of the opioid crisis. On the other hand, to do that and act like while Jeff Sessions is still sitting in power talking entirely differently about urban thugs versus those in the opioid epidemic, we have to call that out for what it is. Well,
0: did anybody – I'm curious, did anybody sort of challenge you? What were some of the the, the voters that, that you weren't winning over and what were they saying to you? You talked a lot about that the last time you were on, just sort of having to convince people to maybe change their industry, change how they do farming, change how – how their their local economy is. And that's that's difficult. I'm wondering if you had those challenges again.
2: Well, first of all, one of the challenges I had in the primary was that I was up against a really nice guy who had um, been uh, very involved in politics full time for the last few years, and um, you know, to his credit, I think had built a lot of relationships and had been part of some very important fights, particularly on uh, reproductive rights and a few other things. So, in terms of the primary, I think you know um, that's a good problem to have when you have two good Democrats that are fighting it out. Um, <clears> Easier for Alpha a deck, basically. Yeah, I okay. think uh, yeah. I think that's uh, <laughs> from a purely tactical standpoint. Yeah, um, and so I think that uh, um, in terms of though trying to expand the party in these ways, you know, we have a couple of challenges. One is, you know, the first order challenge in a state election is getting the people that already support us to care enough to show up, mm-hmm. and our theory on that is. My theory on that has been that voters are actually a lot smarter and more sophisticated than we think. Um, this is, excuse me, not just them being too dumb to know the election's going on. It's they have a pretty good radar on whether it's worth their time. And the example that came up over and over and over again uh, would be some version I'd meet every week of a woman. who's working minimum wage. Nearly two-thirds of minimum wage workers in Virginia are women. Not coincidentally, we systematically undervalue the work women do, particularly women of color. In Virginia, we have the federal minimum wage. So that woman working full-time makes $14,000 a year … To go back to your question about what's interesting at Democratic fundraisers, I always talk about it as $14,000 a year, not seven twenty-five, and the level of shock in those rooms when people do the equation and realize that, that, me- that that's how much people are living on in northern Virginia um, is shocking. And what's the most typical thing that uh, one of those women on minimum wage does after their job is done? They get on a bus to a second minimum wage job. Yeah. So every week, I would meet women who are working 80-plus hours a week for less than $30,000 a year. Um, and I remember this one woman, but there are many uh, again similar, and I said, "You know what do you want from your next Virginia governor?" and she said i 'd really like to see my kids awake once a week. Um, if I made a little bit more per hour, uh, I could get home in time to see them now she 's not going to vote for um, Ed Gillespie. <laughs> the question is whether she 's going to vote. Um, And I think that she is making a pretty sophisticated analysis that on an 85-hour week where she commutes another 12 hours a week to be able to get to a community she can afford to live in uh, with schools that she wants to have her kids in, um, is she going to take 45 minutes to vote? And this, I think, is where Democrats need to understand when we stand for a living wage and don't just check a box on it. When we're speaking about it passionately with the idea we're going to fight about it, um, we do the same on breaking the school-to-prison pipeline and other things, um, people People do respond to policy, Um, not policy in terms of a policy paper but whether they hear someone talking about an issue with a level of passion um, and again, there are politicians far better at this than than I which is probably why I'm on your show twice. Um, But I think people do respond and make that decision about whether to turn out Um, and so – First group we have to do is get the coalition that already exists in Virginia to turn out. Second group, you actually had seven percent of voters last year go third party. Most of them were McMullen Johnson voters, not Stein voters in Virginia. So you have a group of people that were willing to take one step away from the hate and bigotry uh, and now incompetence of the Republican leadership, um, but not yet sold on us. That's a group that you reach differently. And then within the Trump voters, you have very different groups. I mean, you know, if someone's primarily voted by uh, motivated by hate. Or primarily motiva- motivated by being anti-choice, frankly, there's not a lot of engagement to be done there. Uh, it's the only thing Trump's really delivered on, right, is the anti-choice agenda. And so you know, it's not about winning every one of those voters, but there are some people in that group that, that we can reach as well.
1: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I mean, this is I don't want to oversimplify a little bit, but this was sort of what the Clinton campaign was grappling with in the lead up to 2016, which is. Is there a universe within traditional Republican voters who will be so repulsed by Donald Trump uh, that they will actively go against their traditional voting patterns and vote Democratic? And they essentially said, yes, they're going to be in the suburbs. They're going to probably be wealthy and white um, uh, and educated. Educated was the big key. And they spent a lot of time trying to get those voters. And you can make the argument that John Ossoff did – uh, had a similar calculation, at least the Democratic Party did forge on Ossoff, which is – this is an incredibly educated district of people who are disaffected by the Republican Party and they will come out and vote Democratic and it didn't work either time.
2: Why didn't it work? So let me throw out a theory I can't prove. Sure, <laughs> That's why it's a theory. Everything up until this point is absolutely objectively verifiable. Um, when I said earlier that I think in some ways uh, Trump's racism or race baiting played more in the suburbs, um, yeah. it was actually with college-educated whites. Uh, for rural white communities, that dog whistling's been going on forever. Um, but when Trump talked about um, political correctness, he's playing on some notion. Uh, there are a lot of folks, um, you know, well, college. Would, edu- Trump
1: would go around to the suburbs to talk about how shitty the cities were. Yeah. So he'd be. Talking about Chicago mm-hmm. in the Philly suburbs, and to go back, it's, and, and he would pla- also say, what do you have to lose?" As if,
0: you know, and he was literally quoting Nixon in his church.
1: speech. Burrus, so Jr.: yes. right. it's established that he right. did this in the suburbs,
2: and so the immigrant, you know, it's also where you see diaspora communities growing, um, and a lot of those uh, the the uh, white families in those areas haven't gotten a raise in ten or fifteen years. Uh, They haven't actually made it to the country club yet, and they're working pretty hard to get there. And the easiest thing to think is, well, that's because the woman or the minority got the promotion at work. And I think he's playing both on the dystopian law and order piece uh, but also on the – you haven't made it quite as far as you thought you would at this point. Let me give you a reason why. Um, So I think that the physical – the the idea of repulsion to Trump uh, will probably be a little bit – uh, more effective on some level for Democrats given that H- Hillary Clinton for lots of unfair reasons was not trusted by a lot of people. Also, I think with Trump, there was a little bit in, um, before he was actually president of, hey, maybe he's just crazy enough to work. And I think those people have, you know, have come around uh, to saying maybe not. The problem though, and I think this is a challenge we'll see in Virginia and elsewhere, is I don't think that um, uh, people are blaming Republicans – the idea of running against every Republican as a proxy for Trump, I think, is going to be less effective than a lot of Democrat consultants think. You
1: better tell Ralph. When I talked to Ralph Northam, the governor, uh, the gubernatorial candidate. Future governor. Future governor, according to you. Um, I mean, his a lot of his shtick was that Ed Gillespie will not stand in the way of the Trump agenda, that Ed Gillespie will facilitate it. Um, and I mean, I think it's fair to say that the ad Ralph ran, calling Trump a narcissistic maniac broke through perhaps more than anything else from a national perspective in your race. So while Ralph does have his own agenda and while he was pushed in a progressive way by you, I don't think it's a stretch to say that he is being defined to a certain degree as anti-Trump. And is that a problem?
2: Well, let me be clear. I think we are right to criticize Trump. I think it is something that is both called for from a moral and political perspective and I think something that will motivate um, our voters to understand why this matters. I think the question is, do you put all of your chips in that basket, eggs in that basket? I guess, um, and I don't think Ralph's doing that. I think that you know, standing up for a living wage and debt-free community college, and uh, you know, the Medicaid expansion, and other things are, are an important part of that. I think there's also a difference in Gillespie's case between trying to suggest Ed Gillespie is the same as Donald Trump versus trying to say that Ed Gillespie is so corrupt and morally weak that he has not been willing to stand up to Donald Trump a single time. And even that difference, I think, is meaningful because people look at Ed Gillespie and they don't see Donald Trump. Well, do
1: you think there's like a trap? It seems like you're saying there's a broader trap for Democrats in general in the age of Trump, which is he's such a lovely target that you can get lost.
2: Well, I think that the American people don't actually necessarily see Trump as a Republican because he ran bashing so many of the Republican leaders and does so on a regular basis. And he takes positions uh, that aren't necessarily within Republican orthodoxy. And so I think that he's sort of his own brand. In fact, that's the only thing he's ever really created is his own brand, right? And so people see it there. So, so – and he has such a specific and batshit crazy temperament, sorry, uh, it's okay. uh, such a, a – <laughs> uh, you know, his own uh, temperament. Trevor Was there moments in the campaign where you were
0: a little rusty? I mean, you hadn't campaigned in a while. Was it was it was it tough to sort of modulate from your sort of time, you know, in diplomacy to coming back to Virginians and sort of connecting with voters? How did you connect to the woman that would come up to you who's working those two jobs? And were there moments where you were rusty?
2: Oh, I mean, look, we we made lots of mistakes. I'm a flawed candidate in lots of ways. Um, what were the mistakes?
0: That... <laughs> this is the sixty minutes portion of.
2: The... <laughs> <laughs> Um, are you, you going to cry? I feel like you you're okay, no, starting to no, 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 no. sweat a little bit. Yeah, no, it's warm in here, guys. <laughs> yeah. so seriously. Uh, Pink the heat up. Whew. Can I get some water in here? <laughs> um, from the beginning, basically, we felt like our path to victory was going to require either becoming kind of the net roots – Um. Uh, darling, or pulling the establishment a little bit more to neutral, yeah. and you know our internals, which ended up being accurate, suggest we were actually up a point with ten days left, and there was a fifteen point swing of undecideds at the end, which a number of things drove that the Washington post endorsement, the cumulative economic effect, so at any point in there, we had either you know been been able to accomplish one of those goals we had gotten there and and if I was a better candidate, I would have been able to do that uh, at the beginning. I think you know. We um, there's a lot more, a lot we could have done from making more phone calls and, and doing some relationship management uh, there to being able to better articulate the case of why this was a meaningful difference um, because there was a national tendency not to get involved in primaries, et cetera. I mean, if we'd had five percent of the Osef money, it would have been a game changer for us. There's no question about it. Um, and you know, I have my questions about whether putting, you know, if you're at a poker table, table, do you put a million dollar bet in to win a two hundred thousand 000- you know, dollar pot probably not. But no, you wouldn't uh, do that. That'd um, be a mistake. The uh, but again, you know, that's on me to not have made the case to people effectively. But uh, the other was was national media. Like we had hoped that this we could we could nationalize the race, and we did with sort of the thought press. There were a lot of um, yeah, yeah. written yeah. profiles that went through, but we were always the next story up on like the the Hayes Maddow set right, and Trump just choked out so much of that space. I know so. it
1: seems like a really stupid, trivial question, but do you wish you had done the narcissistic maniac ad?
2: Um, I mean, look. First of all, I wish I had the money to run four ads. People were able at the end of the day to see four or five of Northam's ads and basically one and a half of ours. Yeah, but Um, that's
1: not the. My question is more geared towards: Do you wish you had been the guy who was like, you know, what I'm going to go there with Trump,
0: or would you have gone further, like, fuck this guy?
1: (laughs) I mean, no. But the truth is, you just sat here. The first thing you said to us when you sat here was, you recognized the moment Trump was elected, the authoritarian dictator. Impulse yeah. from your time overseas. I mean, that was that's brutal stuff. Wait, you, let's not let's not hold on a let's not like joke around. That's brutal stuff.
2: And we said and all that in the launch video. Okay. Like, I was not in any way. The only issue is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, to be honest, that most of the. State Democratic Party had not actually even spoken about Trump between Election Day and us getting in the race. And we were criticized initially for coming out and saying right. we're going to be a firewall against the hate and bigotry of the Trump administration in our launch video January 5th. And the initial buzz was Perriella doesn't understand Virginia. This is not a local issue, etc. And like a lot of things in the race that then ended up getting picked up uh, by others and perhaps escalated by others. Um, so we were very you know, blunt about that. The narcissistic maniac uh, line was a good line and they put – had a lot of Money to put behind yeah. it. Um, what was frustrating was that, you know, groups that, well, anyway, if you go to the Washington Post editorial board, they were still trying to buy into this. Frame they had introduced from early on that I was running a purely anti-Trump campaign and Ralph was running a Virginia-based campaign. When if you look at our ads and you had pushed
1: Ralph on all these issues too, which is
2: I mean we put out 15 policy papers that the Post wasn't covering, um, and then says why aren't you doing more Virginia policy? So you know the the uh, it's frustrating when those who should be the ones kind of elevating the public debate or, are are um, kind of playing into the worst of our lowbrow politics. But in terms of the tactics of it, there's no question that the anti-Trump mood was there. We were getting hit for again. Uh, from the media for running a purely anti-Trump campaign despite the fact that we were putting out policy paper after – policy, and not just putting them out. We were like going out in the community and doing hour-long – t- you know, I, I thought the frustration
1: it. you would have actually was would be slightly different, which is that there was this prison that people were viewing the race through, which was, oh, this is like Sanders versus Hillary and Ralph's Hillary and your Sanders. And it was very simplistic and I thought that might have been a frustration for you.
2: Uh, yes. There were <laughs> – there, there, there uh, there were two or three frames that people understood, and I think journalists—no uh, offense—are okay. um, pretty pretty lazy and default to clickbait. And you know, replay of sixteen is something people Zach, understand. Cut the show. Uh,
1: <laughs> we're We're done. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: you know, I mean, and and some of the more thought journalists got it. I mean, it's if you're endorsed by. The chair of Hillary Clinton's campaign by 30 of Obama's top advisors and by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, you can either cover that as, oh, this is about Bernie versus Hillary or you can say, hey, wait a second. What is this next generation of politics uh, that combines all of these elements? So you
1: saw your race as more generational then?
2: Uh yeah, but again, you know, um it, I got to go convince the voters of that and um voters went the other way and that's why I'm excited But, to but didn't none of Brett. that really matter. It was didn't it come down to the fact that
0: you jumped in the race kind of late and that Northern had already sewn up the main democratic people in the in the state. All three all the major politicians endorsed him, including Tim
2: Kane. Yeah, there were lots of factors. Uh, and and so that's why it was considered a long shot bid when we got in. I think the fact that we seemed to keep it so close for so long, um, is it – I'd like to think of as a testament to the kind of race we won and uh, run and, um, and the rest. Um, but yeah, I mean you can look at it a lot of ways. I mean you know, it wasn't just getting in in January. It was getting in in January from a dead start, right? Um, if I was the sitting congressman at that point and had been doing events all around the state that's a very different uh, reality to get into. Um, but I really believed in what we were doing. I believed we could change the politics of the state um, and that we would have put the House of Delegates strongly in play um, because of the places we were connecting with voters that don't normally look at Democrats or show up in state elections. Um, so, you know, we went for it. Why did, why don't, we why didn't Why don't you think you did better in Northern Virginia and Richmond? Those
0: were the places where you didn't do as well.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. We actually ended up uh, basically drawing even in the exurbs where we thought we would not do as well and uh, getting crushed in the inner ring um, uh, suburbs. Um, and you live in Alexandria. So basically your, your neighbors voted yeah. against you. Yeah. No, I think yeah, – <laughs> you know, Those are who know you best. Yeah. <laughs> do, you look at, do you look at them differently? Like, um, you think they're moving? <laughs> <laughs> no. Though certainly the highest – actually the highest turnout um, uh, precinct in the state was Charlottesville where I'm from originally. So, go. you know. Uh, maybe it's to know me and then have absence from me. <laughs> yeah, as a that's it. The, makes Distance the makes the heart. That the worst. Well, you know, different theories on that. I mean, I think uh, certainly in the inner ring is. Um, I mean you can map a theory on it that says we did well in direct proportion to how well people are doing economically Um, and the democrats would do well to understand that the exurbs are actually – have a lot of families that are cash poor and struggling. Uh, So the issue – the more – the bolder economic agenda we are putting out there. But the problem with that is what you brought up earlier. Like we don't want to – Overdetermine too much from our race, positive or negative, because you had these various things. You had the unity of the establishment uh, against us. Um, uh, you had the late entry into the race, and you had a four million dollar effectively cash advantage.
1: Well, let's move, let's extrapolate from there. Um, what is the wh- extrapolate? What's what's the? Uh, I hope I used the right word. What what is the? Um, what lessons can be learned from other Democrats from your run?
2: Um, I mean I probably need a night's sleep before – You've
1: had uh, many night's sleeps. We gave you like an extra yeah, week.
2: You were supposed to come on three days ago. <laughs> I haven't actually. Uh, you know, you got to do the unity tour. You got to do the thank Fair you enough, tour. Enough, you got to launch the the new thing to to help win back the House of Delegates. Do you press. want me to rephrase um, the question? <laughs> uh,
0: no. So behind the scenes, Ralph is kind of a dick, right?
2: He's <laughs> a total very, dick. He's a very, good man and no, he'll seriously, be a great What, 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 um, what do about, we learn how, from
0: this?
1: How about this? So, what What's the biggest thing Democrats should worry about? going into this next cycle?
2: I think one is that we would – we are going to miss a generational opportunity if we just assume anti-Trump energy is pro-Democratic Party energy. Uh, We have to go out and make the case. We have to earn that. Um, And there are a lot of voters out there that are not sold on the Democratic Party. I think that's one. The second – and I think that the the real medium to long-term play in my mind is whichever party – figures out how to talk about both monopoly and automation first is going to define the politics of the next 10 to 15 years. Um, I think that needs to be done along with blunt conversation about structural and overt racism rather than at, at at odds with it. And you know, the only thing in my mind right now dumber than the false fight between whether this was about economic anxiety or racism is this – public intellectual fight between the monopoly crowd and the automation crowd um, uh, who hate each other and both of these are huge problems that reinforce each other um, I think there is tremendous um, uh, resonance out there I mean monopolies you know the only group that hates monopolies more than progressives are conservatives um, and this is crushing communities you know and there's a lot that we can speak to in this space so the starting point here is I think that politicians from both parties for the most part don't want to talk about these two topics because no one has a solution to these two topics and because they don't make a good bogeyman. Monopolies a little bit. Automation, not at all. Mon- monopolies make a very good – Monopolies do. Um, and – So – but with the automation crowd, I mean we're talking about literally half of jobs in Virginia that could be disrupted or destroyed in the next 15 years. Mm -hmm. I think AI and deep learning is going to come on sooner than people think. I think people can already feel it in their jobs. I think the data is hiding a lot of the impacts that are already there. Um, And we we – you know, I always come back to this idea that we have to remember that voters are smarter than we think. So they can see what's happening to the Tolpus collector, the ATM collector and when what they hear – I think Democrats have a higher price to pay for not dealing with this because most – most voters think Silicon Valley is driven by Democrats, which isn't in fact true, um, and they think technology is coming out of the big cities that vote for Democrats, which is true. And so, I think their default assumption is going to be that this is, you know, driven there. And that's partly because Republicans are more comfortable being intellectually dishonest, so they can keep blaming, you know, outsourcing or whatever else.
1: So you're, let's say, I mean, I don't know, you, you might run again, but let's say you instead are, you know, tasked by John Podesta to help actually deliver that blueprint for the 21st century Democrat. What's your top three suggestions?
2: I think that um, one of the things that I tried to talk about on the trail um, that I think can be part of this, is I said the answer to some of our problems is beer, um, and beer, 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 um, and so I like that. Okay. it 's not just because the President drives us to drink more, and alcohol sales would suggest that, but 15 years ago <laughs> uh, fifteen years ago ninety six percent of all the beer we drank in America was produced by a couple of big beer companies you 've seen the explosion of micro-brews. Lo- of microbrews it 's completely destroyed big beer, so now they only control eighty five percent of all the beer that we drank in America. That eleven percent delta has. Radically transformed a lot of main streets and rural communities around Virginia. If we looked at even a ten to fifteen percent relocalization on food on ag, including industrial hemp, medicinal marijuana, and other products, and looked at energy, which is the holy grail, if you went to thirty to fifty percent localized uh, energy production, you would you would actually solve the jobs crisis. You would solve the rural economic development crisis. And here in Virginia, um, almost in Virginia, uh, you know we have this this thing going on right now where the people in Northern Virginia feel like they pay all the taxes to the rest of the state and get nothing but vitriol in return. The rest of the state feels like all the jobs and growth are up in Northern Virginia and they're being left behind. Both of these narratives are actually true. Um, And the answer to that is what if we could actually be doing massive economic redevelopment in these areas, switching from an economy of extraction to an economy of restoration in a way that helps then produce tax revenue, et cetera, and take the pressure off Northern Virginia while addressing climate change, et cetera. With the pipeline fights we were involved in in Virginia, yes, I opposed them because of the climate implications. I was absolutely clear about that. Everyone in rural Virginia knows I'm a climate hawk. I voted for the cap and trade bill and I went home and defended it. But – The bigger play here is actually about whether or not you want to invest $6.7 billion in a monopoly economy that continues to destroy these communities or whether you go to distributed power. Take that money, give it to wind farmers, solar manufacturers. Methane capture. I mean methane capture is a huge part of it, right? In addition to the energy efficiency. I mean you can see huge job creation just on the weatherization and efficiency stuff if you get the incentives right. So when you take the –
1: OK. And and, and people get this. I, I presume when you talk to them. But they don't get enough that they're going out and
2: voting. They did this time. I mean the votes – We nobody has turned out rural voters in a primary, no Democrat in the way that we did this year. Um, and the pipeline was – and the anti-monopoly message was a huge motivating issue and it was something that also played well with our coalition. Um, so it helped that there was a conceptual piece here, the, the monopoly critique combined with a very localized issue that people could understand um, that has you know, the environment and the jobs component to it. It was a challenge with unions because some of the unions I happen to love were very pro-pipeline um, and that continues to be a challenge. E- all of them agree. If we could change the dollars one for one over to clean energy, they would take that deal in a heartbeat because there are a lot more jobs created on the energy efficiency and clean energy. The problem is the monopoly gets to play by its own set of rules, dominion power. It's the biggest contributor to both political parties in Virginia and it's just crushing job growth and business growth in Virginia. Um, But everyone in the conventional wisdom, including the Washington Post sort of buys into this argument that is completely at odds with the data in terms of where job creation and business creation comes from. So, you know, Understanding this piece of the economy, the automation and consolidation piece together, which is really consolidation is two pieces, the monopoly and the geographic consolidation. but finding local examples obviously helps uh, to draw this, but it's you know. That along with the skyrocketing debt issues, I think Elizabeth Warren's really led the way on a lot of the living wage and debt issues, not just college debt, but consumer debt um, and what that means for people. Obviously, when the, the monopoly also comes into your Comcast, Verizon kind of experiences, it has a rural broadband um, piece, et cetera. Um, second, I think that you know we can talk more bluntly about. Both the criminal justice reform needs and the mental health needs in a way that the politics on this have changed. Um, this is actually, first of all, it's the right thing to do, but it's actually a winning issue in rural communities if you talk about it right. Um, and uh, again, you have a little bit of a difference in the suburbs uh, yeah. of how it lands. Um, but you know, I think that's a, an, an important piece of it. Um, and uh, yeah,
1: two is fine. Don't worry.
2: No, oh, I got more. The first one was long. So yeah, I felt that, that, that was going to
0: be the entirety. Yeah. Um I thought. I mean, yeah, that, that I would have voted. I mean, that and would, then it's, just
1: <laughs> before we go, just to address the idea of voter turnout and and this notion that that working mom, two jobs, literally cannot spend forty five minutes of her day to go to the polls. I mean, how do you how do you communicate with her the significance of actually casting that ballot in a way that doesn't actually offend her because mm. she can't take off that time. She can't afford to take off that time.
2: Let me answer that in part by making it my third point. Sure. Um, I can't remember the third one. Uh, and that was talking about a, a real democracy, uh, rejuvenating democracy agenda. Um, and in Virginia, we challenge the tech community to make Virginia the first 100 percent voter participation state. Um, I think that combination of voter participation, nonpartisan redistricting, um, and money in politics, there's part of what makes someone not bother to vote is that they think the system is rigged and corrupt and they're right. Um, so I'm even less likely to take those 45 minutes if I think that ultimately, you know, the districts have been drawn by a corporate lobbying firm in D.C., which they were, um, and you know, there are all these efforts to limit, you know, voting, et cetera. We should be making it easier. I think we should go aggressive on that, get out of the voter suppression mode and into the 100% voting uh, as the goal mode. Which we've
1: seen a lot of groups are now doing automatic registration as like their primary focus.
2: But Democrats, one of the mistakes we make is we focus on the policy, not the aspiration. All those are good things to do voting, etc. But when we talk about that, people's eyes glaze over. When you talk about the idea that we're going to reach 100 percent voter participation, people – that engages people I think in a different way. Let – the policy wonks figure out how to get there and it's important to have those policy ideas but ultimately what we need to be doing is setting the standard of what we're trying to get to um, which I think and then forcing the republicans quite frankly to be against it why are you against 100% voter participation um, so in those areas in terms of you know uh, I, we do this thing on the on the campaign called 24 hours of Tom where I campaign for 24 hours straight so we did this seven. we actually did 7am to 8am so it's 25 hours of Tom this time uh, and you know, we stopped at this uh, truck stop and I started this woman, who ended up being a Trump voter. Uh, and she's a single mom of three kids, and she makes less than ten dollars an hour. And you know, her politics were in the other direction. And I said, you know, what would fifteen dollars an hour mean to you? That would be twenty eight thousand dollars a year. And she said, it would mean everything to me. It would mean my children's future. It would be a game changer. Um, and she said you know that's the kind of thing like she just didn't even know that was a possibility um but if she thought that a party was actually going to be fighting for that um she doesn't think the democrats care about anyone other than rich people i mean you've seen the polling most americans think democrats only care about rich people um and so when we when we break through that in a meaningful way that that connects to a kitchen table and she has the sense we're really going to fight for it she then went on to say in the same conversation um that uh um, she said, and it would really help to have the second income, but my fiance is in prison. Um, and I said, what's he in prison for? And she said, he's in prison for being addicted to drugs. Um, and you know, when we talked about the idea of treating addiction as a public health crisis, not only is there you know sort of the moral element of rehumanizing our relationship with people, it also means that family stays together and they're a two-income home and they're paying taxes instead of us paying $30,000 a year to incarcerate him. and. I find conservative communities are very ready to hear the idea that instead of – instead of spending three hundred thousand dollars a decade to incarcerate someone you know and I only want to spend ten thousand dollars getting them a free community college education who's the liberal and who's the conservative to me there's something pretty liberal about spending three hundred thousand of someone's taxpayer money to put someone in prison instead of ten thousand dollars to invest in their in their education so you know that's the kind of voter who just thinks of themselves as a Republican thinks of the Democrats as the party of the elite um, and sitting down and talking to the uh, about standing for those bolder things uh, rather than this idea of trying to sound more like Republicans by going out and actually being a party of a bold economic agenda, I think we can get through to folks. But it's going to take multiple iterations, and it's going to take politicians that are better than me at this.
1: So, what's your future?
2: Are you going to run again? Oh, I hope not. Um, it's uh, you know, it's the fight that matters, <laughs> and I think you know we have helped push the party to be much bolder. I think uh, Ralph has – is an even stronger candidate than he was before and I think the first goal right now is to make sure we win big in Virginia uh, and win big frankly on the issues that are now being mainstreamed in the party and show that those are good things to run on in a swing state not just for the three statewide's, but also for the House of Delegates that's in play. I'm going to be very involved in that as well Um, and I think it will be an interesting chance to look at different people from different regions and areas and how they can run in this era of Trump so that's a big part of it and that'll be you know something like uh, half of my life and then half is this prevent a world war project which (laughs) is looking at both the racial reconciliation piece and the automation monopoly piece Um, and I think that's uh, you know what that looks like please
1: prevent uh, the world war I I said one
2: follow up question so you talk about um,
0: you know meeting this woman at the truck stop and her needing to believe that you'll actually fight for her for this minimum wage increase that a lot of people just don't believe Democrats uh, when they say they'll fight for something, that they might chicken out or, you know, be sort of just saying something to, to get elected. And I think that was a criticism of Hillary that, like, she would say some of these things and she kind of hedged on the minimum wage a little bit in the primary. And she hedged on health care, too. She said that, I mean, there was at one point she was arguing against universal health care. So how do you combat that and how do you get Democrats to grow a spine?
2: Well, I would say it a little differently. I would say if you take Hillary's Senate run when she was actually able to get out and meet people and they saw her as a human being, she was very effective at that. When it was filtered through the media, uh, which I think was never particularly fair to her, I think it came across a different way. And I do think this issue – one of the things we took away from the campaign is unfiltered access to candidates is probably increasingly going to be the norm. Um, I think that was why we were able to break through even though we weren't able to get across the finish line. Line. Um, and that's in part because people, frankly, are pretty cynical about the um, uh, about the uh, the media. I mean, I don't know if the story is true, but apparently the, the journalist who was with us on Twenty Four Hours of Tom took this story to the editors, and they were so skeptical because they thought it was staged um that he only included uh the the wage piece and not the the drug piece and that's the thing it's like you know so much of our experience was having one conversation outside the beltway that was the lived experience, and then people here being like, Oh, that can't possibly be uh, true right but yes, I think you know people are looking for uh, boldness. And I go back to this idea. I don't think people feel right now that the system is effectively working for everyone. We just need to tweak it around the edges. I think the people are 10 steps ahead of the policymakers on understanding something has shifted tectonically. Um, and you know, if the Democratic Party is just against Trump, uh, which is an important piece of it, um, I think we won't speak to that. If instead we're getting at these root causes of what is creating that level of economic anxiety, and what how do we address the you know the racial reconciliation piece? Uh, to me, um, those are going to be uh, important elements. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.
1: That was former congressman and gubernatorial candidate Tom Perriello. Candidate Confessional is produced and edited by Zach Young, who as dedicated listeners will know by now, wrote our theme music. Are you happy, Zach? Thank you, Sam.
0: He'll be uh, selling CDRs of his theme song (laughs) in the uh, back of his pickup truck out out front of the office.
1: Now listen, if you enjoyed this show, please just continue to spread the word. I know it's over, but it's not going anywhere. We're still on iTunes. You can still pass around those links. As for season three... The heart wants what it wants. And Jason, god damn it, we should do a season three. Sam,
0: I want you to promise our listeners right here and now that we'll have a season three. I can't make that promise. But hopeful. Stay tuned.